Now, I'm speaking uh, with David Lavelle, who collaborated on Brian Walpole's very aptly named book, My War, Life is for Living. Now, David, in my conversations with Brian, he tells me about his uh, exercise in the Rajang River in Sarawak, which is the largest river in the, in the state. Uh, I believe it runs parallel to the Kuching, uh, the river in Kuching. And his idea was he was told to he had to sweep down this river and get rid of all the Japanese all the way down to the South China Sea. Now, did he talk to you about this special one-man submarine? Yes, the, the Sleeping Beauty, I think it was called. Right. I, I don't think he ever actually used it in action. I don't know if anybody did. He tells uh, me he put a limpet, or not a limpet, some plastic uh, explosive on a vessel. Oh, okay. He might have... In one I, of the harbours. I, I, re- I can't recall that story. And, and, um, then, and then the other one was that he was out on this thing. But now, you have to paint the picture. Apparently, it had some sort of an aluminium frame with covered in canvas. It had some buoyancy via some tanks. And he had to wear a wetsuit and had a sort of a snorkel. So he was three quarters underwater himself. Mm. And it putted along on a couple of motorcycle batteries. He tells me that he was tooting around this harbour and a semaphore light uh, came upon him and they started to flash him to identify himself. And he realised it was the Americans and so he, he told them uh, with his torch to go forth and multiply. And they then realised that they were dealing with an Australian. <laughs> now, I don't know how true that story is, but uh, it sort of struck me as, uh, as interesting. He obviously wasn't having... He st- I, think, I think there's a story, a similar story like... Of um, I think when, when they're on a boat, when they're on their way to a mission, and and they got challenged by another ship, and they they flashed a, a message like that. Oh, okay. In, in Morse code, I think. Oh well, maybe I miss. Maybe I'm, I'm mixing mm. a couple of stories up. And that well, vessel you're talking about, I think, was a crake vessel. They were made here in Port Melbourne. Mm. They're like a Chinese junk, and they were deliberately meant to look like one. But instead of cargo on the deck. Uh, those boxes hid uh, machine guns and things, I believe. Mm, yeah, um, I think when the 9th Division landed in Labuan, Z Special Unit was sent to kidnap a Japanese Kempitai officer, and he was part of that mission. It was about a week after Labuan, I think, and they went on that vessel to right. do that kidnapping mission, okay. which was um, which was a successful mission, I think. And that was before the operation that that ended up in Kuching, which was a which was a bigger one. It was called Semit Three. Yeah, I read about that. I didn't realise the name of it. Yeah, apparently it means ant. Now, but but what we do know and what's documented in the war records is that he set out down the Rajang River, and I don't know when, but he gathered around him this group of sea dyaks or Iban, and he had one of them was a favourite of his, and he talks he talks about him uh, quite a bit. And he he would say how excited they got when he said when he would suggest to them it's time to go head hunting. Did did he re- retell you that story? Yes, it was a, it was a big part of the operation. The the summit operation was to recruit the Iban headhunters to help the Allied soldiers with their great knowledge of 
the jungle and their jungle fighting abilities. The Iban, of course, were persecuted by the Japanese terribly. You know, there was terrible atrocities and cruelties happening. So mm. the, the idea was to, to harness that force in the country that, that, that had very, a very strong anti-Japanese sentiment and also great expertise in jungle fighting. Yeah. But they were head, the thing is, they were headhunters. So to get their undivided cooperation, they had to be allowed to take the heads of their conquests. So part of the Semit operation involved the Australian Z Special Unit paying the headhunters bounties for every Japanese head they took, which which was the result of every ambush and, and that the Iban helped the team with. So right. there were groups of headhunters that joined with, with Brian and, and the, the other couple of Australian Z men that were there and they'd help them with the ambushes. And then after an ambush had taken place, the headhunters would then behead the corpses. And later on, the, the heads were, were counted and one straight settlement dollar was paid to them for, for each head that they took. Right. Brian told me occasionally they'd bring a Chinese head by mistake and you'd have to sort of push that to one side and say, I can't pay you for that one. Yeah, there was a... there was. Sometimes they did try it on, and right. and and, and there was, I think there was a bit of a, a problem with a few non-Japanese heads being offered and well, collateral um, damages. They would say I in the guess US. So, yes. He comes down the Rajung River, walking on one side. I don't know whether he ever crossed this river. It's a pretty large river, from from what I uh, can see of it on Google Earth and everything. But along the way. He told me that he had a family of orangutan, and of course uh, this area is one of the last remaining areas for the orang, and the family of orangutan, four of them, mum and dad and two chimps, if that's the right word for a baby orang, they followed him along and he used to leave his chocolate ration on the side of the path for them. And they didn't engage closely, but he, he was able to stop up the path easily close enough to, to observe what was going on, but he was a bit careful because... The young ones would be protected fiercely by the parents, of course. Uh, did you hear that story? Yes, and I, that, that's that's one aspect of, of Brian that I think is very interesting and appealing. He took a genuine interest in the environment there and the jungle and, and everything about it. He was he was interested in uh, what was there and he, and he had great affection for the Iban people too. He was remarkably, as I think one reviewer of the book said, he, he seems to be remarkably free of colonial prejudices of his time. And, yeah. and, and he was. And, and just to hear him talk, he, he took the trouble to learn as much as he could of their language. Yes before he went so and i think he may have been just about the only one there who could converse with them and strike up a rapport with them. right so it was something he couldn't fake you know like he he, he enjoyed their company and they enjoyed his company mm. they assumed he was he was a headhunter i mean they ended up thinking that australia australians were headhunters yeah, that's right. And, and I believe he he shared time in a longhouse and they offered him uh, one of the young girls to keep yes. him warm of the evening and uh, he he declined politely. Uh, yes, he, he declined, I think, out of self-discipline. He certainly had an eye for the ladies and he liked to drink and he liked to party. There's no doubt about that. But he was also a very, very self-disciplined, highly trained soldier. And there was no way, he told me, he said, there was no way I was going to get caught with my pants down in right. a longhouse. Right. And he said he was on high alert for the, any possibility of 
surprise attack the whole time he was there. And yeah, he. I think you know, if, if he was in Melbourne or in some hospital for malaria, I think he would. <laughs> it wouldn't have had a moment's hesitation. But but being in in that situation when he was in a war zone, there was there was no way he was going to let his concentration lapse. He had this remarkable discipline as well in his yeah. character. Now he, uh, I believe, he carried a Bren gun. Did, did he talk to you about what weapon he actually what what weapon yeah, he defended the, the, the himself weapon, with? The weapon that he carried that he seemed to be most interested in was his knuckle duster knife. Ah, right. Which, which is quite a fearsome looking object. He actually lent it to me to, to photograph for the book. Oh, right. So I had it in my house for quite a while. Oh. And it's a very frightening looking thing. It's uh, it's literally a set of knuckle dusters with a, a blade. knife blade attached. You wouldn't get that and, back through customs now, would you? And it. No, and he um, and it did get serious yes. use in in the war. It it made its own contribution to the war effort in Brian's fist. Is that right? Like, literally, yeah. Mm. He he had quite a lot of weapons in his flat. Actually, it was a bit of a, a bit of an arsenal. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he had a lot of he had he had a few Japanese flags too. I think. Right. Okay. Uh, well, uh, we're going to take another break, uh, David. But when we come back. Um, we want to just get to, to the end of his quest down the Rajang River because there's an interesting confrontation there that we'll yeah. talk about. You're listening to The Travel Writers Show on JR 87.8 FM. Mm-hmm. 